So respond.church, you can sign up for that. Now, uh, we're done with me for this morning. I want to introduce to you uh, a friend of ours, a friend of mine who getting to know and uh, was uh, most recently a teaching pastor at North Coast Church in Vista. Um, a lot of our students and, uh, know him as he's been a Hume Lake speaker every summer. They invite him up there. They don't just invite anyone up there, by the way. So he uh, has a lot of great things and in, insight and wisdom and has a really compelling story that I am so excited to hear from Chris this morning. So would you uh, help me in welcoming up Chris Hilkin, who's going to teach us this morning. Hi. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of John today, chapter 11. John chapter 11. And as you're getting turned to that section of Scripture, one thing that I find really compelling is um, there are certain words or certain ideas or certain thoughts when it comes to Scripture that it, it seems like from when you were a little kid. How many of you guys like, grew up in the church you, like your first memories are like being at church. How many of you guys are kind of like that? Yeah, me too. My dad's a Lutheran pastor. And so, I, I mean, I did catechism when I was a little kid. I had to go through confirmation. And um, we had to like sit down in front of an elder of the church and explain theology to him. Like, and I thought that stuff was fun. So that just gives you a word picture into like my world. I enjoyed that. But one of the risks that we run in being in church, especially if you've been here for a long time, and if you're new, we welcome you to this kind of Jesus conversation but, and, and you'll find the same thing in your life with different things. We, we find ourselves sometimes saying words or, or repeating what I call platitudes. Uh, um, a platitude is, is kind of like, it, it's, a, it's a word phrase that we use with people, especially in the Christian community, so often that we've never really tested, is this true? Is this right? Um, is this helpful? Is this biblically accurate? Or do we just kind of repeat the same things over and over and over again? And a lot of us, even as Christians, we lie all the time. We say a phrase like, oh, don't worry, I'll pray for you. But we don't have any real intention of doing so. Or if you've ever seen someone who's going through grief or struggling or, or some kind of pain in their life, we say things all the time, right? Um, so someone loses a loved one, and, and we want to be helpful to them. And so we might say, well, God needed another angel in heaven. And you just go like, well, I don't... I don't think that's where God finds angels. Like that's, <laughs> first of all, humans don't become angels. Secondly, angels don't have wings. And thirdly, that's not the way that death works. Like we don't become, but we just say these things and we repeat them and we repeat them over and over again. And, and the problem with platitudes and the problem with these ideas is that sometimes they can make this journey into our heart and then the, the, the theology of our heart, what we actually believe at a convictional level inside of our soul when pain and, and suffering and grief enters your life, it's kind of like stop, drop, and roll. You guess what I'm talking about? Okay, if you're on fire, you stop, drop, and roll, right? You guys, everyone's aware of that. I want to make sure we're safe here at all times. Um, how many of you guys have ever, you learned stop, drop, and roll when you were a kid? Good, okay. What's your name? Ken. How old were you when you learned stop, drop, and roll? Picture seven. How often in a year's time do you go back over the course material for stop, drop, and roll? <laughs> Never. How do you know it? Because what? You just know it, right? It's a convictional level. And for most of us, then, it's great because if you ever get caught on fire, you can't be like, what were the nine things to remember, right? It's easy. Stop, drop, and roll. 
It's our response to chaos. That's what we do when we're on fire. You stop dropping, you can't, it can't be complicated, right? Now there's like an active shooter one that they're teaching schools and churches, run, hide, fight. If you can run, run. If you can hide, hide. If not, then you're gonna have to fight, right? And the reason that we have these simple phrases is because in crisis, we don't do great thinking. We don't do deep, cogitating self-examination in a way that is often helpful. We find ourselves just kind of jumping to the lowest common denominator of ourselves and being okay with it. And what we're going to see in the story today is we're going to see Jesus interacting with platitudinal people. And we get a picture of Jesus that maybe is different than the Jesus that we grew up with. I think maybe for me, what I understood Jesus as is someone who was really uh, present for those who were doing really well. But that he might not have had much to say about me in pain. He might not have had much to say about a world in crisis. He might not have had much to say about a world in economic collapse. He might have not had a lot to say about people who lose loved ones, who are struggling with infertility, who have miscarriages. Jesus is just absent until you're ready to get back on the boat of religion again. In the meantime, it's kind of up to you. And once you're satisfied and ready to come back to the church way of doing things and to be okay again, then Jesus is ready to be okay again with you. When you dig into the text, what you find is a very different picture of Jesus. John chapter 11. Here's what it says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. Okay, so Bethany is in a very strategic part in this story. Jesus is about to finish his journey of public ministry right here. Okay, so for 10 chapters, John records... um, basically the stories that the other three gospels didn't. They're all in harmony. A lot of these other gospels are in harmony, and John kind of stands alone. He kind of fills in the gaps of the stories that the other people didn't tell, and the idea is that the other three were probably all based on a text that Peter helped to write, Um, and so John is able to give us different insight than the other three gospels. So he tells this story. Uh, There's a road, it's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is a very busy highway. And one of the last stops before you get to Jerusalem would be this city called Bethany. And it literally means the house of the poor. So people would go by it, but um, Passover was coming. This really big festival was coming up. So you have hundreds, thousands, if not millions of Jews from all over traveling these roads towards Jerusalem for Passover. And there's this little podunk town on the side of the road called Bethany that is, exists right before you get to the gates of Jerusalem on, on the passageway of all these people, all these pilgrims coming for Passover. Very strategic location. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. You got to love this phrase right here. Uh, You got Mary and Martha, two sisters. Martha is um, historically or traditionally the the oldest uh, daughter. Um, Other places in the text, she's the one who's getting dinner ready while the middle child is sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Any older, any oldest kids in here? Yeah. When you read the story of Mary and Martha, it always kind of upsets you, doesn't it? You're like, well, she should have been helping. Like, I mean, stuff has to get done. And then the middle child is Mary. Mary's the wild child, right? Any middle children like me? All right. We, we are the reason that there are rules in the house. And, um, and then Lazarus is probably uh, the youngest. 
And so you've got two older sisters caring for their younger brother who is sick. And the way that they describe Lazarus is the one that you love, okay? This is the God of the universe, God in a bod, God become man, incarnate. And these sisters have seen him interact with their brother so much that they're willing to make this phrase. And Jesus doesn't correct them. They say, the one that you love is sick. Jesus doesn't go, I don't know about love, you know, or like, oh, that's too far. Or, I don't know, we're friends. No, he, he accepts this. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Okay, there's a little bit of a wordplay going on. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. The word glorify means um, to make weighty. The, the, the name of Jesus is going to be made weightier in this process. It's going to be heavier after this is done. Now, Jesus loved Mary Martha and her sister and Lazarus, right? It didn't just say Jesus loved their family. It was the individual love of God for each and every one of them. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. You've got, like there's gotta be, there's gotta be a timeout right here, right? Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick and the next verse is, so Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. Right? It's, what? When you were in a kid and you were in Sunday school class and you're coloring Jesus with like the rainbows and the sheep and, and like the dress that he's wearing, we, we like missed this section of scripture. The one you love is sick. Can Jesus heal people? Have, have, has Martha and Mary seen Jesus heal people? Yeah. And so it's a, it's a common request. If you love someone and you're capable of fixing the predicament they're in, ipso facto, you will do so. This is the problem of evil, even to this day. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why does he let bad things happen? This is the problem of evil in first-century Palestine, right? If you love him and you can do it, you will. Jesus stays put for two more days. And he also gives the reason behind it. This sickness will not end in death, but this has come upon you that I might be glorified. That my name would be weightier than it was before. So when he heard that he went, two more days, okay, verse seven. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, okay, Judea doesn't like Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Judea and Jesus, oil and water, do not like each other. The Jews are there. Jesus threatens their whole system, wants to bring the whole system down on their heads. They love their power, position, prestige. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. So he goes, let's go back into the lion's den. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, remember? And yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. He's talking about the will of God. He's, like, he's, he's saying, my time has not yet come to pass. I mean, it's not time for me to die yet, and I'm inside the will of God. And so if my time has not come to die, and I walk into Jerusalem, I walk back into Judea, they're not going to be able to take my life if they wanted to. This is the will of the Lord. If you walk in darkness, if you walk to your own will, there's no promises. If you're not completing the task that God wants for your life, then for sure. 
But inside the will of God, God's going to accomplish something. And God made it clear to Jesus that he had more to accomplish before he was going to get killed. So why worry? Now, he doesn't have much time, but he has a little bit of time left. Verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. That's the same verb as, as dies. It's used all over scripture. Our friend Lazarus is dead, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. So again, a play on words. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly. <laughs> Jesus, have done this in your life? No. Lazarus is dead, right? All of the cutesy language has to go out the window. He makes it very clear. Now, don't confuse me. Lazarus is dead. And what is this next phrase, this parenthetical phrase? The preposition for your sake. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am, help me out, glad I was not there. How do you mean? What do you mean? How is this for my sake? And how are you glad you weren't there? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the, rest of the disciples, let us also go, and we will die with him. Ironic, because Thomas will future be known as the doubter. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is a significant period of time. In Jewish thought, your soul would hover around your body for three days' time. Okay? Which is ridiculous. But, because Jesus is anthropomorphizing, condescending, and speaking their language, he goes, we'll wait till day four. Okay? I don't want any confusion on what brings this guy back from the dead. Not the hovering spirit around him. On the fourth day, okay? If you start, don't do this. I've done the work research for you. If you look at what happens to a body, non-embalmed body after four days, which is, this is, again, ancient Near East. They didn't even, they didn't do anything. They didn't mummify them. They didn't embalm them, anything. They just put claws over them, and then they heaped on the spices to keep the body from, not really to keep it from smelling, but to overwhelm the senses with the spice so that the smell of the dead body wouldn't be so bad. It, this has gone past rigor mortis and four days all the way to your body has become soft, your blood has pooled completely, and you've begun to decompose, okay? So when your body decomposes, it stinketh, okay? Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, right? So just a hop, skip, and a jump away from where they're going to have Passover. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brothers, of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, and here's this conditional, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha, she jumps. She's jumping around, and she's inconsistent even with her thought. It's like she says things with her mouth that she doesn't believe in her heart, right? God will give you whatever you ask, and yet she thinks that the, her brother's death is final. I know that he will rise again on the last day, right? She, she's, she's reciting all these religious platitudes about what will happen, how it will be. Don't worry, God's got a purpose for this. Well, uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window, or what, is that the way around? I don't know, it's all false, right? It's just, it doesn't matter if it's what it is, because it's not real. 
It, and, and Jesus almost has to call her out of it and go, Martha, you, you're saying these things, but do you believe them? You, you started with a little bit of an accusation. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? I sensed a bit of anger. I sensed a, a bit of disillusionment for you. I, I, I sense a gap between who you thought I was and who I actually am. Let's chase that one. But instead of going further with that, she jumps right to platitudes. But God works the good of those who love him. But I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But right, every coffee mug phrase you could possibly get in Christianity, she starts throwing at the guy. Bless you. And so Jesus cuts through all of that. I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, oh, this is so good. This is the tetragrammaton right here. I am Yahweh. I am, he recites his own divine name. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus doesn't say he could get her some resurrection or he knows a thing or two about resurrection, or he has found the secret of resurrecting. Jesus embodies resurrection and life. I am. I be resurrection. I be life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. But kind of, right? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did we hear this before? Martha said the same thing, right? In our communities, we start to, before Jesus even shows up in the picture, we begin to tell ourselves certain things, right? Martha and Mary have talked about this. This is what they've been saying to each other while they've been weeping and mourning with one another. If Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. That's a good point. I'm going to say the same thing, right? We just, they just, now they're going to recite it. Suffering often brings out the theology of our hearts. And if the theology of our hearts are in a line with Jesus, then suffering can, in so many situations, draw us closer into a walk with him. Conversely, if our theology, our understanding of God is off, like a, like a megaphone, suffering makes that louder. It intensifies good theology, and suffering intensifies bad theology. That's why we find so many people who don't walk with Jesus, and you ask them why, and they point to problems in their life. And they point to troubles, and they point to hardship, and they point to death, and they say, this death took away my faith. It's also why you find people who are so firmly grounded and rooted in Jesus, their faith seems unshakable, and you ask them, where did this come from? And what do they point to? Death. Pain, suffering, trial, hardship. I challenge you to find someone of great magnanimous faith that has not gone through deep trouble in their life, deep trial in their life. 
It's almost impossible. It is one of the catalytic uses that God has for us to draw us deeper to himself. She calls her sister aside. They come and we repeat the same thing. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, there's a picture of Jesus that I also didn't grow up with. Does, does Jesus know the outcome of the story? Do you think he knows the outcome of the story? Yeah, I do too. John chapter 2, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that Jesus possessed the spirit without limits. So he had full access. He was inside the will of God perfectly, but he also had full access to the power of the spirit. And he knows the reason that he's in Bethany right here before Passover and stayed two days longer. He already foretold it. He's going to come back. He is asleep. I'm going to wake him up. He knows what's going to happen. And I think for a lot of us, then our natural supposition would be if you knew the outcome, you would show up to the grave and just go, why are you all so sad? You know? What are those tears for, friend? What is wrong with y'all? Don't you know who I am? But we don't get this picture of Jesus. We, we get a picture of Jesus who is on one hand well acquainted with the end, who understands where the story is going, and yet in the middle of it, what does he do? Sawing her, seeing her weeping, and the Jews that had come along with her, he was deeply moved in spirit. He was klino in the Greek. He was, as the whalers were, beside himself. He was undone. We don't really get this, right? Every image of Jesus we have, he's almost always straight-faced, right? Very calm, cool, and collected. This is not the picture we get of Jesus. The word that is used here for this is, is as someone who is weeping and sobbing bitterly. It's someone who is, who is overcome by their emotion. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, unless you count Job 3, verse 2, but who cares? John eleven thirty five, 35, and it's just so simple. It, it needs its own verse because it, it, it seems to be almost this great hiccup in the story of Jesus. What is Jesus doing weeping? And, and this word right here, it's, uh, it, it elicits the idea of, it's most similarly given to a bull who snorts in frustration, right? It's all, if you ever bugged a horse before and they let out one of those like, you're bugging me snorts, like, <clears throat> it's this angry billowing. So we see Jesus deeply moved in spirit and then what, what is, when Jesus sees death, what is he looking at? He's looking at an unnatural break in the divine plan of God, which was to be with and enjoy his people forever. When, when God made Adam and Eve, the, the aim was not make them so that they would sin. Now, God knew that they would, but the original intention was that there would be no pain and no death. And now Jesus, in his human form, he's experienced something, a deep love for a friend and a deep love for these women, and now their friend is dead, and he sees the end result of sin in the world. And, and not just that, He's about to be surrounded by whom? Everyone else who's come into the audience of this situation, including the Pharisees and the religious elite, are all going to show up and check out what's going on. And the hearts that are far from God, the hearts that are far from Jesus, Jesus weeps for his friend for his temporary death and the fact that we will experience loss and brokenness. But then there's a much deeper reason that he wails and billows angrily is because the people in the audience of what's going on, including the Jews who will not receive him as Savior, 
It's not just a temporary death they're going to experience. And we watch Jesus angrily billowing against the end result of sin in the world. We get him weeping for his friend, billowing angrily against the result of what sin has caused. A compassionate, loving Savior. Isaiah tells us a man who is familiar with pain. Jesus billows angrily. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Don't you love the emphasis on that uh, word in this section? He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. The one who you loved is dead. See how he loved him. But some of them said, this is another reason that, that word love is so important right there. The number one way that the ancient Greeks would talk about the characteristics of their gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, was apatheia. What does that word sound like? Apa, apathetic. What are the gods? They're apatheia. They're apathetic. What does that mean? We give them sacrifices and stuff, but they don't care about us. They're distant. They're unfeeling. We, we exist to serve them and to make sacrifices. We just, we just hope we don't make them too upset. But they are apatheia. They couldn't care less. Do we see a God of apatheia here? This is wrecking their whole system. Not just the Jews who are thinking that God is the non-suffering king, the, the Davidic king who's going to come and bring rule and reign. He's upset the Jews who had this picture of him that didn't pan out. Now you've got the Greeks. When God comes, he'll be apathetic too. We will all serve him. He will sit on a throne and we will all bring him food all day long and he will have many wives and many women and he will have power and authority and all these things. And he's born in a stable and he's raised in Nazareth and he's a tecton. He's a quarry worker. He works with his hands for a living and he doesn't do anything significant for 30 years. And he's got three years. He gets baptized by a guy eating locusts named John. He walks around and heals people. He rarely does what the people ask him to do. They try to kill him a few different times. They try to push him off a cliff at one other time. This is not the savior that they wanted. And a lot of us run a very similar risk. And if you're anything like me, you just, you, sometimes we can call it Jesus, but we've really constructed an idol in our heart and we've attributed characteristics to him, but really all it is is a version of me that has divine power. That's all that God is for, for me a lot of the time. It's me with powers, superpowers. But how does God answer prayers? How I would, if I had superpowers. What schedule is God on? Mine, if I had superpowers. What does he care about? What is his aim? What is his target? What is his goal? What is his mission? It is mine, but he has superpowers. A great theologian once said, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. Right? If you go to Israel to this day, that the church of the Holy Sepulcher, where Jesus' body was um, entombed, there's different wings. There's like a um, Greek Orthodox wing, and like an African church wing, and like a um, an Asian church wing and like a Scandinavian church wing. is like Everyone wants a piece of the action, right? So all these different churches represented in there. They have all the, these little enclaves and then there's a stained glass picture of Jesus in almost every single one of these things. And guess what color Jesus is at the Scandinavian enclave? White. Blue eyes, blonde hair. Guess what color Jesus is at the African one, 
And the Asian one, he's Asian. And you see what we do? We just go, you must be like, you know? I think a lot of us are going to meet Jesus one day and go, oh, interesting, (laughs) you know? You're a five-foot-two Middle Eastern man. (laughs) You don't look like me at all. And he's going to say, it doesn't end there. I don't think like you either. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are greater than yours. No one believes that. No one. I don't believe that. I want to. And as an, as an apologist, I go around, I speak at conferences, and I'm, I, am, I, I defend the reasonability of the faith of Jesus, of believing in God and the Bible. I do this all the time. And that's one of people's favorite things, is they say, well, why would there be evil? What they really mean is, I can't conceptualize why there would be what seems like gratuitous evil in the world, therefore God doesn't exist. When really the answer is, could it possibly be that the God of the universe knows, thinks, understands, and operates in a way that's different than yours? To say no to that question is to put yourself as a co-equal with God. And I, I'm not, I'm, I don't speak to you as someone on the other side. Man, I used to doubt back in the day. I used to be misled like you people. No. I got five kids. My oldest one is seven. My youngest one is one. It's a lot. <laughs> you can't, don't say too much. I can't do anything about it now. It's over. Um, my wife gave birth to our fifth kid last March. And afterwards, she started having this, like, weird kind of strange back pain. We ended up getting it diagnosed. It was a pulmonary embolism, and the doctor was pretty clear that it was dangerous and could have potentially ended her life. Um, Really scared my wife, so much so that the next night, she woke up in the middle of the night thinking that she was, um, that the pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot on your lungs, and the way that people die from it, 25% of everyone with with a pulmonary embolism, their first sign is instant death, okay? So it's a scary thing. Sometimes the lack of blood flow can create a fluttering in your heart or some kind of an arrhythmia because your heart hasn't gotten proper oxygenated blood because of the clot. So she woke up in the middle of the night and the doctors think this is what was happening, but she thought that the blood clot had passed and it was going to kill her. So she woke me up at midnight, like three or four days after Finley was born, after the pulmonary embolism was diagnosed, and she said, Christopher, I'm going to die. And I was like, what? What? No, I don't, I don't think so. Like from a dead sleep. She's like, I need, I need to go. Let's wake up the kids. I got to tell them goodbye. And I'm like, I, I think we should pro- let's like pause. Let me call someone. We'll figure it out. Went to the emergency room. And they're like, this is probably what it is. It's a cardiac infarcture is what it's called. And it's just, this, it's a weird thing that happens with the heart. They said, you're fine. They did an EKG and all the other ways of scanning our heart. They said, you're going to be, you're going to be totally fine. Put on a blood thinner. The next night, instead of going to sleep, she stayed up all night. It was really weird. It was like she started equating sleep with death and then didn't sleep for 10 nights straight. Now, you might have heard me just say she didn't sleep well for 10 nights, and I didn't say that. She didn't sleep for 10 nights straight. A doctor told us one time, if you put a person in a room without food or water or sleep, sleep kills them first. And when that happened, something just fundamentally shifted in my wife's brain. She, after that, closely after that, was diagnosed with schizophrenia, psychopathy. She forgot who she was a lot of the time. She became paranoid. She would talk about suicidal ideation again and again. 
started having suicidal thoughts. Not that she wanted her life to end, but that something was telling her that she had to do so. She loved her life. She loved me. She loved our kids. She loved everything else like that. And yet she thought, I have to do this. This is what's important. I can't control when this embolism is going to kill me. So if I take control and do it to myself, then I don't have to live in fear anymore. She just wasn't herself. We worked and we worked in therapy and time and money and everything else over and over again, right? You, you start handing off your wife to people going like, seriously, I'll give you, I will sell my kidney if you can get my wife better. Like someone just give my wife back, you know? Make her better, make her okay, give her, give her healing, give her something, give her treatment. I don't care what it is. I don't care where I, we have to go. We'll go to the ends of the earth. Like if it's me and my five kids and my wife and we're naked on the side of the road because we've given everything to get my wife back, at least I'm gonna get her back. For months, she wrestled. For months, she wrestled with this. The problem kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And she got farther and farther from who she was. And her behavior became more erratic and more unpredictable. And I got to sit front row to mental health in its fullness of someone who's completely lost who they were because of a pulmonary embolism that led to sleeplessness that led to a complete rewiring of the brain. Then Google, like, what's the best place in America for PTSD? Because that's what they diagnosed her with. Ten days, your brain, it's like you've been in a foxhole in war. People, they measure your trauma line in your brain, and the average person's trauma line is about two, three, or four. Someone who just came back from Iraq, they're generally around 32, 31 or 32. If they've been in a firefight, Pedro's registering a 64. So the idea was you got to get the trauma line down. If you get the trauma line down, you can start treatment on other things. We've got to take care of the psychopathy. We've got to take care of the schizophrenia. We've got to take care of, the, of, of all these other issues. But you have to start by getting that trauma down so she can be a reasonable patient. So went to this, flew out to this place in Sierra. Uh, it's called Sierra Tucson in Tucson, Arizona, and put her in this top-notch mental health facility. 30-day program. Can't see me. Can't see the kids. Called her every day on the phone. And on July 31st of last year, she took her own life. In the mental health facility. And, and like, you, you get, like, you get the phone call, you know, and what do you do? Like, you know the English language, so you, you can comprehend when someone says, Mr. Hilkin, this morning your wife attempted suicide and she was successful. That's how they told me. And you're like, well, you, I, you, you, I, I get what you just said, but I, in, another, in another very real way, I have no clue what you just told me. I'm a single dad of five kids. My best friend's not coming home. My kids are going to grow up without a mom. Like, Harper's going to walk down the aisle without seeing her mom on her side. Like, what? What? Every picture of the future that we had is just going to be completely null and void. And you, you start with that, and, and it, there's this, like, angry billowing that takes place inside of your heart where you just start to get mad and frustrated, and you get confused, and you think about the, the sovereign God of all things, and you start to think to yourself, what, what in the world is going on? Like, why don't you do something? You ever felt that way? God, do, I mean, the great physician, do something. And I just, I remember the moment where just thinking, like, this is, this is the moment where I, either everything I've ever learned and taught and 
studied matters or it doesn't matter at all. Like, submission to God is not nodding along with the junk that you agree with and then shaking your head at that which you don't. Like, and I remember feeling that way of like, I either walk away or I just remember the truths of the theology of who I know you are. I know that like Lazarus and Martha and Mary, you love me. I know you love me. And I know that you're the resurrection of life. And I know that you have the power to make dead things live again. And I know that you're all, I know you've, you've got a power that I couldn't even imagine possessing. That you care for me, that you love me, that you're sovereign, that you have a will that I don't understand, and you've got a method that I don't understand, and you've got a timing that I don't understand. I get all that stuff. And I remember thinking so critically, who is going to be the God of my life? And I just felt like I needed to make the decision right now. Because I either go one way or I go the other way. And I remember thinking John 6, 66, Jesus is, he says something really offensive and everyone starts to leave him. And he looks at, his, at Peter and he says, are you gonna leave me too? And Peter's response is, to whom would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. And that was like, that was it. This isn't like some story of a man of great faith who overcame. No, it's a story of a dumpster fire of an idiot named Chris Hilkin who's thrown in the middle of this crucible of faith and brokenness and pain and mental health issues, and I have a little bit of faith in a really big God. That's the whole story of my life. And what I want to challenge us with here is when we start to look at the text and we see what Jesus is doing here, we have all these platitudes in our heart and Jesus, I think, so often is calling us to something deeper and something realer and something more significant and meaningful that can make a difference in our lives, but we often relegate him to the margins of our spirituality where he just does the things exactly like we would and we offer him praise and thanksgiving when he does that. But biblical submission means writing your name on the bottom of a contract with nothing above it and then handing it across the table and going, write what you will. It's not to receive a contract of God full of the things that I want, and then when I agree, I sign my name to it. And there's a pivotal point, I think, in the life of everyone, just like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everyone. And, and here's the funny thing about Lazarus. Did he come back from the dead? Yeah. Have you guys met Lazarus before? Where is he? Dead! Isn't it funny? He came back to life, and then what did he do? He died again. And why was it a miracle? Because Mary and Martha and, and the families weren't ready for it to happen then. This is what we accuse God of. Your timing is not good. Your will is not good. And your method of accomplishing your will is not good. Those are the things we put God on trial for. And almost everything in our life falls into one of those three categories. I remember thinking to myself as I'm experiencing this and laying on the floor of my son's room, as I'm experiencing like, how do I tell her parents? How do I tell? I'm just weeping and I'm just a ball of mush. And I think, who is going to be God of your life, Chris Hilkin. This time. The theology of your brain matters nothing. It matters what you do right now. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away. But Lord, said Martha, there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. In the New King James Version, he stinketh, right? Don't you love this? Like, 
Jesus claims to have the power to make dead things live again, and Martha's issue was, what if he smells bad? You know what I'm talking about? This is what we do. We're willing to acknowledge in songs, you are a great God, you do great things, you are all powerful, you can do all things. Your will is not my will, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. I submit my full life to you. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. But when the rubber meets the road of our life, there's this deep question that has to permeate our hearts. Who is God? And it's either me or it's him. And the way that you know is that if he is God, he's not a cosmic consultant. We don't get his advice and then do what we want. We just say, in thought, word, deed, action, in attitude, in everything about my life, you are God and I am not. And I don't get, I don't, I don't, like, why would you let this happen? Like, why? I rack my brain on a daily basis going like, is it so I can come and talk to churches and people can go, oh, cool, he's a mental health advocate for the church. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to have a neat story, a powerful, impactful story. I would give it all back to have my wife back, but that's not my life now. I'll tell you what, though, I've never been more excited for heaven. I've never been less connected to this world. I've never cared less what you think about me. I just want to be in the side, in, in the middle of God's will in my life. And again, you, this is just the story of a dumb dumpster fire of a man with small, trepidatious, scared at times faith in a really great God. If you have all the faith in the world, the most powerful faith ever, that a yardstick stretched across the Grand Canyon can hold your weight, it won't, and you'll die. But you had great faith. But you had great faith in a small object. Meanwhile, if you have small, trepidatious, afraid, but one step at a time faith, you gotta blindfold yourself because you're so afraid of what's happening in a monumental bridge built over the Grand Canyon that you're terrified to walk over, you're safe. Why? Because it's not about the size of your faith, it's about the size of what your faith is in, and we serve a great and good God, even with my small, insignificant faith but his timing is not my timing, his ways are not my ways, his goal is not my goal at times. And when those two things come into conflict, which is the only time submission matters, what will we do? This is the challenge of John 11. What do we do when everything we thought Jesus was gonna do is the opposite of what Jesus did? Who's God then? And Jesus is the resurrection. That means my end is covered. He's also my life, which is my now is covered. Let's pray. Jesus, will you just stir something new in us as we seek your word and seek your will? And God, in a room even this size, there's people that are struggling in the middle of their doubts and their problems, or maybe they're, they're in the middle of a good run, but you make it very clear in scripture that trouble will come our way. In this world, we will have trouble. And when that happens, Lord, would you bend our hearts and bend our will towards yours? Would you be the God of our lives and not ourselves? Would you be worshiped and glorified even in the middle of our doubts? And God, when we do have doubts and struggles and insecurities with you, would we turn to your scripture and not to Google or to Oprah, but instead would we look for the answers inside of the truth himself, the logos from John chapter one? Would we look at you and say, would you answer these questions that I have? Because I know these things. I know that you're good. I know that you love me. And I know that you can do all things. 
But where your will and mine don't line up, God, may I sign the contract ahead of time and hand you the paper to fill in as you will. Let me pray. Amen. Um, Chris, thank you so much for sharing with us. And, um, you know, I, my wife and I have often talked. We, we don't want to have a neat story <laughs> if it takes going through pain. We've actually said that. And we know, uh, you know, I love what Chris said is he had to make a choice of what God would he believe? Which direction is he going to go? You know, my heart for this church and our heart as leaders for this church is that we go the way of the God who loves us. That's what we can bank our hope on. Not the God who has the path laid out perfectly for us, a God who says, don't worry, you're never going to hurt, you're never going to have bumps in the road, your kids are always going to do what you want them to do, your marriage is going to be easy, you're always going to get that promotion. There'll never be a global pandemic that'll mess everything up. That's not the promise that we're given. The promise that there's a God who loves you. We want to go that way as a church. And we want desperately for our friends, our neighbors, our community to go that way. And you know what? We're not going to be able to explain God to them very often. We're not going to be able to explain why things happen. We can be people who say, but we know he loves us. And so I hope this morning as you leave, that you leave just with a sense of, wow, this God still loves me. And yes, the world is not as it's meant to be. It's broken. Sin is not God's plan. Pain and death is not his plan. He weeps over it. But this is not the end. There is a hope. So as we go here today, let me just pray over you. Prayer blessing. Would you receive this as we go? I want to remind you of this blessing we share often. You are sons and daughters of God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done through his life, his death, his resurrection, your sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow are forgiven, and you may be at peace with God. And there'll be days you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Be days when you will be sitting at a table before your enemies. Days when the doubts are going to be big. But God's presence will be with you. So go now and be filled with his spirit. The spirit of the God who loves you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning. I encourage you to say hello to people you said hello to earlier. Go grab some coffee together. And let's bring this hope of Jesus as we go. Amen? All right. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next week.